Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll need a Bible to follow along for our message this week and every week. So we supply them for you. These brothers have some. They're making their way to the back. Get their attention if you need a Bible. That is marked for you at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want you to own a copy of God's Word. This past October was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. One of the most dramatic scenes from that pivotal period in church history occurred in 1521 with the trial of Martin Luther at Worms. Luther was summoned to account for his writings, which had attacked the Roman Catholic doctrines of penance, of purgatory, and of papal supremacy. Present at the councils were cardinals, the princes of the church, along with high secular princes. Presiding there was no less than Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. He held the power to put Luther to death for his teachings. Not only was that death threat heavy in the air, but the likely method of execution would have been burning as had been done to Luther's predecessor, John Huss, at the behest of another church council a hundred years before. So Luther could not fail to be intimidated by this scene. And if the record of his prayer on the night before his final hearing is any indication, he was indeed frightened. So it was for this reason that Johann von Eck, the papal accuser, Eck had high expectations for a triumphant humbling of the reformer and of his doctrines. With the preliminaries all complete, and time for prayer and reflection having, having been given to the accused, and with the emperor and the cardinals glowering down at Luther, Eck pressed this final question. Will you recant? Luther's bold answer consisted of these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict each other, then I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Now, what was it that enabled an obscure monk to stand unmoved before so dire a threat? What gives a man or woman the conviction to withstand the assault of high worldly authorities? The answer was given by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Christians who, like Luther, were also willing to die for their belief in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. You see, it's the answer to one question that always determines whether we will succumb to our desires and what is easy in any difficult situation, not just persecution. 
I mean, the situation for us is not the situation that Luther had, as we'll see. It's not the situation that the Thessalonians had. But nonetheless, difficulty in various forms is the lot of all Christians, and we are faced with choices. It may be the choice of whether I'm going to stay with my spouse even though I'm not happy in the marriage. Or having decided to stay because God does not permit divorce, except for adultery and abandonment, having decided to stay, then will I demonstrate love to him or her? Or will I handle that difficult personal situation in a God-honoring way by lovingly confronting it? Or will I take the easy but sinful way by gossiping about it, but not actually dealing with it as God says? You could plug in any situation in which we don't want to do what's right, And whether we resist the temptation will turn on the same question as it did for Luther. Is the Bible, the Holy Scripture given through the prophets and apostles, is it the word of man or is it the word of God? Our ability to stand firm in the face of difficulty with conviction and courage continues to turn on that question to this day for every one of us. Now, as we started the new year four weeks ago, I said that we wanted to take some time to remind ourselves of what kind of church God approves. People shop for churches. Perhaps you're here shopping for a church yourself. We shop for churches, as I noted a few weeks ago, but we only have the vaguest criteria for what to look for. The church in Thessalonica is called a model church in chapter 1. So this book is a good place for us to go to see, not what are we looking for in a church, but in the title of this series, what God looks for in a church. Now, if you've not been able to attend the prior Sundays, the messages for those are, like all of our messages, at our website, cbctrenton.com. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we examine our individual and our collective commitment to the truth of his word, even when it's hard. Let's bow together. Father, we're before you with your word open before us. And we're thankful that you've communicated to us. You've communicated to us what we need. You finished your word 2,000 years ago, but you're an omniscient God. You know everything. So when you inspired your word, you knew what we needed in 2018. So we thank you for your word. But Lord, having it and opening it, even thanking you for it, does not mean that we put it into practice. And each of us here is tempted to discard your word when it's hard. Help us to be reminded today that it is the word of God. It's not the word of men. Therefore, what it says holds for eternity. What it says is absolutely, infallibly true. And all of the promises that you have given in it, all the warnings that you have given in it, are unfailingly true as well. Help us then to act upon it in the situations that you have sovereignly assigned to each of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 13 begins this way. We also thank God continually. We also. 
That word also is saying that this reason for thanks is in addition to something else for which Paul, who wrote Thessalonians, was thankful. He said, I'm also thankful for, and then he goes on to give it, but that's in addition to what? Let me remind you that the other reason for him being thankful is near the beginning of the letter, back in chapter 1, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. So he had started out by saying, I'm continually thankful for those things. But now he is saying in chapter 2 and verse 13, in addition to being continually thankful for those things, verse 13 provides another reason for his gratitude to the Lord. And it's because, again, verse 13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. He's thankful for that. And he knows that they did that because of how they are standing, excuse me, in the midst of the difficulty, the persecution that they're facing. So I say in the first point of your outline, the outline's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. The first point is this. The power for suffering is truth. The power for suffering is truth. That is, the power to endure difficulty of all types is our conviction that God's word and the promises he makes in it are absolutely true. You you can't turn it off? (laughs) None of the buttons work. Everybody, that's Rob Bailey. Rob... Thanks for being a good sport, Rob. So as I was saying, the power for suffering is truth. That is the ability to be able to endure difficulty is what you believe about truth. The power to endure difficulty of all types is our conviction that God's word and the promises that he makes in it are absolutely true. And if you lapse in your belief in this, then when you get lonely... You'll consent to dating an unbeliever in violation of God's word, for example. Or you'll wallow in your circumstance rather than rejoice in it, likewise in violation of God's word. If we're going to appropriate the power of God's word in our troubles, there are two things that we must do and one sure result when we do. And I have those three items in your outline. The first is this, the word must be heard. Verse 13 says, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Now, this refers to their initial reception of the gospel when Paul and Silas and Timothy preached to them. So, of course, in order for the word to be heard, in order for it to be received, it must be given. So the Bible says famously in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word. And then having had this initial reception of the word, because it's been given, it's been preached, now after that, it must be regularly received as well. There are a number of passages that tell us this. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says famously, impress these commands on your children, 
talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You'll engage in regular intake of and thinking about God's word like is described in Deuteronomy 6. You'll do that if you see God's word as the psalmist did in Psalm 19. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So if we're going to have this power to withstand difficulty because we believe the truth of God's word in the face of what's going on, then it's going to have to begin with receiving God's word and receiving it in an ongoing way. That means, for starters, we need to read his word regularly. We started a new year here. So I ask you, how is your Bible reading plan that you had a New Year's resolution for? How's that going now four weeks in? It's not too late to begin. Not too late to pick it up again. At the beginning of the year, those of you that are on our mailing list, I sent you a devotional that has a reading for every day and then a good thought from D.A. Carson about that. If you didn't receive that and you want it, we'll be happy to send that PDF to you. Let the folks at the Information Center desk know. Give them your email address and we'll get that to you. We offer opportunities to have you in God's Word on a regular basis. The class that I'll be teaching next hour and have been for several weeks Master Plan for Life. You get a notebook with that. And then there's a homework portion. We don't grade it. We don't record it. But it's for you to prepare yourself for the next week's time together. And every day, the six days prior to coming together on Sunday, there's some things for you to look up and some questions for you to answer. That's one way. We offer growth partners for you. If you would like a growth partner, then there's a notebook that goes with that. You meet once a week or once every other week with your partner. And there's some things for you to read in God's word on a regular basis. I mentioned the devotional. We offer all those things because we do not want to simply offer commands to you and make you feel guilty without providing a pathway to obey them. But friends, we have offered those pathways. Now it's up to you to take advantage of those. The power for suffering is truth. Truth from the word. A word that must be heard. It must be heard initially for salvation. It must be heard regularly for growth. And that growth will happen if you do the second thing that's in your outline. The word must not only be heard, it must be heeded. Verse 13 says, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Now, literally, it says this in Greek, a word heard from us out from God. That is, the missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy, spoke the words, but those words came from God. And as the word of God, it was infinitely superior to the words of human opinion that the Thessalonians were accustomed to hearing. Because of Thessalonica's strategic location that I spoke about in the opening uh, message in this series, because of that strategic location, that city attracted many false philosophers and religious teachers. Its residents, therefore, had a wide range of human wisdom and of rhetoric. But then they heard the word of God. And they saw that it was different, qualitatively different than what they heard from men. 
It was actually the word of God. And so the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17, when those missionaries went to that city, here's what it says. Some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, Gentiles, and not a few prominent women. So they, they heard it and they were persuaded by it. The word of God not only must be heard, it must be heeded. The Bible tells us famously in James chapter 1, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. I'm going to continue on, but friends, let me just stop here and say this is one of the hazards to having the word of God. It's, it's, it's a dilemma because on the one hand, we need intake of God's word regularly. So we come to church and we have God's word. And then daily, hopefully we're faithfully reading God's word. But we do that and then we can take it for granted. And we come together and we hear God's word in a sacred time like this, but it's just the thing we do. But do we come with an expectant attitude that says, God, teach me what I need to heed. Teach me what I need to obey. Make me more than simply a hearer. Instead, make me a doer. The Greek word that's translated accepted in verse 13 connotes an inward welcome of the message, a transference from the mind to the heart. Such an eager embracing of what the Thessalonians had heard indicated that God had granted them faith and spiritual life. And then after that, after we are saved through the gospel message, then we have this ongoing reception of God's word. And as we receive it, the idea is that we we heed it. And after salvation, the Spirit of God does an ongoing work that theologians call illumination. Illuminating the mind of the believer as he or she reads God's word to its importance, to its significance for us. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, the person without the Spirit does not, notice, accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Same word used of the Thessalonians, they accepted what was preached as it indeed is the word of God. And it's the spirit of God who does that initially and then in an ongoing way causes us to receive, welcome, accept the word of God and see its significance. The word must be heard. It must be heeded. And then if it is, if those two things are done, thirdly, the word will be effective. You accepted it, verse 13, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. And then it says, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Your New Testament was written in Greek, most of you know. And the Greek verb rendered indeed at work means to work effectively, efficiently, and productively on a supernatural level. God's word always performs his purposes in the lives of all who believe. The prophet Isaiah said on behalf of God, my word that goes out of my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Scripture works on behalf of believers in a bunch of ways. Now I'm going to quickly go through several ways that the word of God is effective. It effectually works in the lives of believers, those who have God the Holy Spirit. First of all, it is through the word that we are saved. James chapter 1. He gave us birth through the word of truth. 
First Peter chapter one, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So it's through the word of God that we are saved. But then the word of God sanctifies us. Jesus said on the night before he was crucified in his prayer to the father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word saves us. It sanctifies us and it then matures us. First Peter two, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. Saving, sanctifying, maturing. The Bible tells us it's the word of God that equips us for what it is we're to do. Famously in second Timothy chapter three, all scripture is God breathed and is useful so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God counsels us. Psalm 119. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Ah, (laughs) wouldn't that be the greatest thing? If the word of God was the primary counselor for all of us. The primary counselor, not the TV, not the pop psychologist, what God says. The word of God builds us up. In his farewell address to the the leaders of the Ephesian church that he had spent three years worth in Acts chapter, three years with, in Acts chapter 20, Paul said this, the word can build you up. And it's the word that ensures our spiritual success. Psalm 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, whatever they do prospers. And then lastly, it gives us hope. Psalm 119, again, I've put my hope in your word. So friends, the power for suffering, the ability to go through difficulty and endure difficult relationships, situations, is our conviction regarding the word of God. That word of God must be heard, it must be heeded, and when those two things are done, it will have its good effect. I say secondly in your outline, the power for suffering is truth, And the purpose for suffering is twofold. We'll see those two purposes in a moment. Verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Colon. If you have a NIV, which is the Bible we distribute, most of you have and that I'm using, New International Version, you see there that it says... You became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And then there's a colon there after Jesus. The colon's indicating, now here's how you became imitators. How did you become imitators? You suffered. You suffered at the hands of your own people the same things those churches suffered. So you became imitators of them. You became like them in that You're suffering the same kinds of things they suffered from their own people. So this describes the suffering of the Thessalonian Christians. And then in verses 15 and 16, it's going to describe the suffering of their opponents. The opponents of those Christians. Their suffering, the suffering of the Christians in Thessalonica, was the same as the other churches had suffered. And it was for the same reason, their commitment to Jesus. Now, there are two purposes for suffering. 
for the only two types of people there are in the world. Christians and non-Christians. Do you know that? I mean, you can fill out an application for something and it can ask you, you know, male or female. It can ask you your, you know, ethnicity. It can ask you all kinds of things. So there are all ways, all these ways to categorize uh, one another. But the most important way that we're categorized is just two categories. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not. You're either a Christian or you're not. And suffering has a different purpose for those two categories of people. I say in your outline, sanctification for the Christian. The purpose for suffering is sanctification for the Christian. Or you could put a simpler word, growth. Spiritual growth for the Christian. Suffering for the purpose of our redemption and our final deliverance. Not so we can be forgiven, but so we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Because we are forgiven, we can see suffering through the gospel in a redemptive manner. We can see that God is using our suffering for a bigger purpose. For example, when we suffer as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that there's a reason behind our suffering. God has purpose in our trials and afflictions. We remind ourselves of the famous passage in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good. That's the big picture view of suffering as God works all of our suffering together for our good to make us more like his son, Jesus. So one preacher has broken down the way that God, the various ways that God achieves this purpose of spiritual growth, sanctification for the Christian through difficulty by giving five reasons for Christian suffering. Let me give those to you. Five Christians for reason suffer, uh, for Christian suffering. One is repentance. Suffering is a call for us and others to turn from treasuring anything on earth above God. So God takes something away from you. He's calling you when he does that. He takes your health away. He takes someone away. He is calling you to turn from treasuring anything or anyone on earth above him. Repentance. Secondly, reliance. Suffering is a call to trust God, not the life-sustaining props of the world. So God strips us of our independence. And now we are dependent, reliant upon him. There's repentance, reliance, but also God is seeking to achieve righteousness. Suffering is the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father so that we come to share in His holiness. You have repentance, reliance, righteousness. Another reason is reward. Suffering is working for us a great reward in heaven that will make up for every loss here on earth a thousandfold. And then fifthly, it's a reminder Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. So do you see, friends, when we go through difficulty as Christians, it is not judgment. It is not condemnation. It is God's vehicle in the Christian to achieve one or more of these objectives. So Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians accepted his message as it truly is a word from God. 
And because they accepted the messages of the word of God, God's word was at work in them. And the specific way that it was at work in them is this. They saw their suffering properly. They were able to see their suffering the way God sees it. Redemptively. And Paul was encouraging then these Christians to view their suffering in light of the cross. God's word taught them that their particular suffering was the same type of suffering that other churches were facing. So the Thessalonians were not alone in their suffering. And that's why Paul could say you became imitators of other churches. Persecution was also happening to other churches and those churches were persevering through their own suffering. But not only that, Paul describes the Thessalonian believers suffering as being more than just a pattern that he saw in other churches. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 15. Who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. He's explaining that the church in Thessalonica was part of a bigger pattern of the gospel. A pattern that includes not only other churches contemporaneous with them, but a pattern that includes Jesus himself. And includes the prophets. And includes Paul who is writing these words to him. And so we have four different examples of this type of suffering. The prophets, Jesus, of Paul, and then of these various churches. And Paul now includes this church in Thessalonica in this gospel pattern of suffering. And it was meant to encourage those Christians in Thessalonica and us as well to see our suffering. Hear this, friends. See your suffering in light of this bigger picture. As we go through our difficulties, we need to connect them ultimately to Jesus. This is how we view suffering through the eyes of faith. We must see our suffering in light of our union with Christ and the prophets and other churches and other people. Recognizing that pattern is crucial. Otherwise, instead of looking outward and upward, you will look inward and you will continually spiral downward. The purpose For suffering is sanctification for the Christian. But I say in your outline. It's a judgment for the non-Christian. So you see, friends, the same, do you get this now? The same things can happen to two people, a Christian and a non-Christian, but for two entirely different reasons. And they experience them in two entirely different ways. Growth, spiritual growth for the Christian, sanctification, judgment for the non-Christian. Paul explains redemptive suffering with regard to the Christian, but also the suffering that takes place because of the anger of God at unrepentant sin. It's terrible and it's dreadful and we should not take it lightly. Starting in verse 15 and moving into verse 16, Paul outlined several things that, in this particular case, Jews had done to warrant this wrath. I'll just stop for a moment and say, look, this is not referring, of course, to all Jews. In fact, I already had on the screen for you Acts chapter 17 and verse 4 that says some of the Jews were persuaded and Jesus became their Messiah. And they received him as their Messiah. It's not referring to all Jews. But there was clearly a contingent of Jews who hated the Lord Jesus, and they hated Jesus' followers. And so they killed the Lord Jesus, they killed the prophets, they drove Paul out, and they persecuted him. Persecuted him, they displeased God in all that they did. 
And they opposed all mankind in this action because they were trying to hinder Paul from preaching. The Thessalonians had demonstrated perseverance and suffering. They had emerged triumphant in the hope of eternal glory. But these Jews faced an entirely different situation. They would not be able to endure their fearful, deadly final punishment. The last phrase in verse 15. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. When it says they heap up their sins to the limit, the Bible teaches in a number of places. I don't have time to go there. There's a bunch of places where the Bible teaches that there's a well-defined point at at which people reach the limit of their sins. God is patient, but God has no obligation to continue to offer his grace to anyone. And there is a point at which people reach the limit. Paul's language stems from the kind of expression that's first seen way back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. It says the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God is still being patient, but there's going to be a point. It means that God brings judgment only when sin has reached this certain limit, and it has with some of these opponents. Those Jews had met all the prerequisites for future damnation. They completed the full measure of their sins in rejecting the only truth of salvation, murdering their Messiah and his messengers, and therefore God's wrath has come upon them at last. The expression, at last, it's elsewhere translated. God's wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And it means God will extend his wrath to these unbelievers to its extreme limit or its fullest expression. I take no joy in saying what I'm saying here. But I say it because I believe the truth of God's word. And God says it. Their future punishment in hell was by this time irreversible. It does not mean, in the case here of Jews, but we could really broaden that to any unbeliever. And as it applies to Jews, please understand, it doesn't mean God's done with Israel. It's just as an aside. What the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, that God will renew his attention to Israel and call them to repentance. In fact, the Bible tells us there, there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved. But friends, today, as in Paul's day, the choice between God's blessing and his cursing remains. Those who believe and obey the word and honor other believers by imitating their lives will persevere to eternal glory, which is good reason to be glad for them. But those who reject the word and hinder those who preach it will ultimately suffer eternal condemnation, which is good reason to be sad for them. As we conclude, let's not forget who is writing these words. It's Paul. Paul, the former Pharisee. Paul, one of the chief persecutors of the church in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Paul opposed God's plan and his salvation until he came face to face with Jesus, the one true Messiah on the road to Damascus. When he met Jesus, he realized that Jesus was the true Messiah and he had his heart changed by the word who was made flesh, Jesus Christ. This man who once killed Christians, this man who once opposed God's plan and With every ounce of energy that he had, this man who once lived with the wrath of God upon him, 
This man had met the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was living in that grace and loving his fellow Christians and seeking to bring that good news to the world. And as a result of that, Paul now saw his suffering through Jesus. In fact, Paul now saw everything in his life in relationship to Jesus. When he suffered, it was no longer God's wrath, but was part of God's redemptive work in his life. It was not God's judgment on him. That judgment passed from Paul to Jesus and from me to Jesus and from you to Jesus if you're a Christian. It passed from us to Jesus on the cross. Paul's suffering was no longer viewed as wrath but as grace. And that suffering was working what he called elsewhere an eternal weight of glory. So I ask you, is that true for you? As a Christian, do you see your suffering as part of your deliverance? Do you realize that it's through much suffering that we must enter the kingdom of God? Do you view your suffering through the gospel, realizing that God is at work in your suffering, not to destroy you, but to rescue you? Are you still living your old life, viewing your suffering as a judgment of God? Do you still think that God is out to get you? If you as a Christian are still viewing your suffering as God's judgment, you're not living by faith in his promise. Hear this, friends. God has promised there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. You have moved from judgment. You have moved from wrath to grace. Your take-home truth, then, is this. God's word empowers us to persevere and to achieve his redemptive, rescuing purpose for his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for arranging our circumstances to allow us to be here, to open your word and to be instructed from it. Lord, we don't want to disobey what your word has said. We want to hear, but we want to heed. And so, Lord, I ask you to help me. I ask you to help my brothers and sisters here to this afternoon, this week, apply the truth of what you have told us. In our difficulties, help us to remember and to heed the truths of your word. And thereby, may we resist the temptation to find alternative routes to your truth. Those alternate routes are all sin. And so, Lord, help us to resist that temptation because we have the firm conviction that what you say is true, the promises that you make can be trusted, the warnings that you make are to be feared. Help us to do that this week. Thereby, may we show that we are different, that we have been changed by the word of God, by the gospel. May we live that out. May people see that and may they be drawn to ask us for the hope that lies within us. Go with us this week as we seek to glorify you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.